0: they were. They were called dead-enders and no-hopers, if you had paraplegia.
1: Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. (gasps) Is an Ready. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. My name, I am your host Jill Jaris, joined as always by my lovely co-host Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm getting a little impatient. <laughs> how so?
2: For a second, I thought you forgot your name. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No, it just the cadence changed. And that's messed me up. But I mean, the cadence changed for a good reason, because we realized the other week that because of our name change, we used to be Olympic fever. And that was really, you know, you could tell that was a podcast about the Olympics. Now we're keep the flame alive. And we can be more inclusive of the Paralympics. So whereas before we would have Paralympics episodes every now and then, now we can have more of them. And it makes more sense. So we're very excited about that.
2: And it was something we always intended to do. Mm-hmm. And this just get, gave us a little bit of a kick in the pants to get it done.
1: Exactly, exactly. So that's very exciting. And uh, we're kicking that that uh, mentality off today by talking about wheelchair basketball. But first, a little housekeeping. We need you to vote on which historical Olympics we will cover next year. We have a poll going on in our Facebook group, and I'll also throw up a poll on Twitter So uh, we have a tie right now, very heated conversations about which Olympics we should have next year. The choices are, we choose one of four. So it's either Athens 1896, Cortina 1956, Atlanta 1996, or Torino 2006. And then next year, all of our historical episodes throughout the year will be focused on that one Olympics. So vote, the voting will end at the end of August. So coming up. Yeah, coming up really only, soon. So you don't only have only
2: a few days left.
1: Exactly. So, so let us the know.
2: Facebook group. Uh, I also put it up on the Facebook page.
1: Okay, great. And if you're not on Facebook, you can also email us at flamealivepod at com. But really, you should get on the Facebook group because listener Manu has been ta- posting the most amazing stories about the Helsinki uh, 1952 Olympics. And that's because the uh, stadium is going to reopen. He's got tickets to go see that uh, when it does open. And he's been posting stories from the the games and before the games that all involved the stadium. And it's been fascinating. And
2: just some beautiful stories. And he's so good at telling them right the way he writes out the story is fantastic so it's it's a a very excellent time to join the facebook group exactly and thank you manu for doing all of that they're
1: fantastic thank you yes we love it another exciting bit of news we are now on the ghana platform this is g-a-a-n-a it is a new podcasting platform in india yeah yeah so you can listen to our podcast and then you can listen to some bollywood music which i did today (laughs)
2: <laughs> that's that's an excellent way to spend some time. Exactly.
1: So it doesn't look like you can rate or review us there that I've been able to tell, but uh, that's all right. If you, if that's how you access your, your podcast, that's uh, just look for us there. And if uh, you haven't done so already, please go to the podcast app of your choice and rate and review us. We're always trying to find our people and reviews and ratings help the algorithms boost our visibility because they know that people are listening to us and they'll boost us to more people so we would greatly appreciate that all right this week is the one year to go until the paralympics so we wanted to talk a little bit of parasports history with you our guest is david davis author of the brand new book wheels of courage how paralyzed veterans from world war ii invented wheelchair sports fought for disability rights and inspired a nation which is about the history of wheelchair basketball take a listen to our conversation what got you interested in the history of wheelchair basketball?
0: Well, good question. It started from the previous book that I had done, which was the biography of Duke Kahanamoku. And when Duke was living in Los Angeles in the 1920s, which was the only time he lived outside of Hawaii, he, you know, was an Olympic champ and so was was very prominent, and At the time in the 20s in Southern California, it was a popular time for building pools, swimming pools. And, you know, the Hollywood stars would, you know, build a backyard swimming pool that was very prestigious. And colleges, universities, institutions were building swimming pools for for their members or for, for their students. And so Duke and other swimming champs From Southern California and diving champs would be invited to openings of these swimming pools, you know, as a way to get media attention and that sort of thing. And it was a big deal, you know, so to speak. It was a big splash, right? Okay, so you know, in doing the research about Duke, you know, I'm I'm tracking all of these places where he did these, you know, the first swims or whatever. And lo and behold, there was this one called the Norconian Resort Supreme. And he was part of the grand opening in 1929. And, I, and you know, I live in Southern California. I'm like, I've never heard of this place. What the heck is this? And it turns out it was this grand resort that opened in the 19... in 1929, uh, right before the Great Depression. And it was about 50, 60 miles east of Los Angeles. And, you know, I sort of did a, oh, wow, this is interesting. What's this all about? And... The end of the story was that, unfortunately, because of the bad timing, the resort itself sort of stumbled through the Depression, and it was sold to the Navy right before Pearl Harbor, and it became a naval hospital during World War II. And all of that is interesting, right? Okay, interesting. And then I see reference to a wheelchair basketball team called the Rolling Devils. And... (laughs) You know, you just jump down the rabbit hole, and four years later, you have a book. No, I, I, you know, it was one of the first wheelchair basketball teams ever created, and I just was fascinated by that the origin of wheelchair basketball in America was from, you know, these paralyzed veterans from World War II who were, in a sense, rehabbing in VA and naval hospitals, and, and as part of their rehabilitation, it was... Uh, some recreation was involved, and that was wheelchair basketball, and that's how it started here. And that, to me, was totally fascinating, and um, so I, I I wanted to see what else I could find, and here we are four years later.
2: So you, the, you started the book with soldiers going off to war in World War II, and you went into a great deal of detail into what those soldiers experienced prior to suffering their injuries, why was that important to give that that context?:
0: I'm glad you noticed that. I think it was two twofold in the sense of first of all, I thought their stories were compelling because they they were so different. You know, you have a guy like Johnny Winterholler who was basically on Scouts radar to be, you know, a, a, an elite athlete, maybe maybe could have made the major leagues in baseball, um, certainly was just just a top notch. Uh, athlete at a University of Wyoming then you sort of have you know your farm boy from Iowa and and then you have this other uh, gentleman Stan Denadel in in California who becomes this very successful banking executive after the war so i thought it was a good way to introduce the reader to you know sort of humanize these wheelchair basketball players that these were not just sort of anonymous folks they were sort of every man, so to speak, who went off to war, and this was the, the sacrifice that they made. So I thought it was a good idea to, to, to give some context. And I will say that, you know, speaking, you know, putting on the writer's hat, I was looking for characters who would be sort of through lines through the entire story that I was going to, let's say, 1964, which is sort of when it, where I end the narrative. And I wasn't really able to find that one guy who, you know, played wheelchair basketball for, you know, 20, 25 years or whatever. I, of course, I found it after I finished the book. I found somebody who did that, who fit that criteria. So I, I, I did go into vast detail. I felt the information was good. I, I, I felt that the people's stories were compelling, and, and I thought the readers would gain some insight into the characters as they come back and, and start rehabilitating in, in the hospitals.
2: There's something else that I noticed on that same point throughout the entire book. Whenever you mention one of the athletes, you always mention how they became paralyzed, even if that person is there for a paragraph. Right. right. So, uh, what, was, what was that? Because I thought that was really interesting. It was like polio or car accident. And just you always made a point of telling us how this happened to them.
0: Yeah, I thought that was an important detail for the reader. That uh, again, to take a little bit away from the anonymity of these folks who've never really been written about, except in their local newspapers here and there, or or a, a newsletter from the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. Um, in other words, these these men that I'm writing about, and mostly men, as as, as you know. To me, this was a blank slate, this story, in, in a lot of ways. This, this story really hadn't been told in the mainstream media. Certainly, it's been told in, in the community of disability, people with disabilities. Certainly, the veterans know this story. Paralyzed veterans of America know this story. But outside of that, there's very little has been done in the mainstream. And I thought it was important that if I'm going to mention somebody, even if it's one time and one time only, if I have a, a, a nugget or a detail to give you know, something about this person, because who knows, maybe he, he will not be written about ever again. I, I, I want to demonstrate the sacrifice, first of all, if it's military or if it was polio, that this person had survived that. So I, I, I thought that was important.
2: So, speaking of the military vein, you start with these injured soldiers coming back to VA hospitals, mostly stateside, and this is really the first time paralyzed patients survive for any length of time. Correct. So, prior to World War II, you had a spinal cord injury and that was was a death sentence.
0: Yeah, that was, and specifically... uh, if it, If it was, let's just say, World War One, which obviously is the, is the most recent in terms of timing, yeah, if you if you had suffered a spinal cord injury in World War one and it was hard to find totally accurate statistics perfectly, but basically what I was gleaning from a couple of essays that were done uh, or or medical journal articles, I should say was basically 80 percent chance you were dead within 18 months something like that 80 to 90 percent so you know yeah basically it's a death sentence and it was because and and i something you know i'm not a uh, you know i'm not a doctor i'm not a, a medical specialist um so it was something i didn't understand before but it wasn't so much let's say if you're in world war one you you know you get struck by a bullet or 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 it's a hand grenade of some sort or whatever um, it wasn't so much that that was the culprit; it was disease, it was sepsis, because they didn't have the antibodies, and it was not a pretty it was not a pretty death either. Um, I mean, this is su- there's a lot of suffering, and and the doctors sort of you know threw up their hands at that point. I mean, they basically said, "There's nothing we can do; just immobilize them and you know keep them. And, and which, of course, turned out to be the exact wrong thing that you should do. And, you know, maybe give him some morphine or something to, to take, take away the pain until he passes. So, yeah, it was a crude, it, it, before World War II, there, it was really a crude uh, way to handle that. And uh, they were. They were called dead enders and no hopers uh, if you had paraplegia.
2: So you've got these VA doctors in the U.S. and doctors in Stoke Mandeville in the U.K. kind of making it up as they go along with treating these people. And that's wheelchair basketball kind of developed organically in that way. So let's, very, let, let's, go, through, so. let's go through that.
0: Yeah, no, very much so. I mean, it, it, it'd it be nice to say, oh, yeah, it was invented on this day and, and it happened with this particular person. And to some degree, there were coaches and trainers like Bob Ranierson at the Birmingham VA Hospital in Van Nuys, California, out here in Southern California. There were some others whose, whose names have actually been lost to history at Cushing Hospital in, in, in Framingham, Massachusetts. But yeah, they wouldn't have had that opportunity if it wasn't for the doctors to realize that there is a way to treat paraplegia and it starts with you know the wonder drug of the times which was penicillin you know something we take for granted but penicillin you know that what that was a life affirming for these guys it helped take away that disease and it enabled the men to start gaining strength and gaining weight and being able to you know start exercising and start moving And that was the click-in with with the doctors. There were two things that they did. One, or or actually there were many things they did, but the two most important was, one was that you needed one guy, one doctor, and it was at that point male, to sort of be the overseer of the patient's condition. And within that, he or she would have other doctors, nurses, physical therapists, all helping out and contributing about different bodily functions and what's working and what's not. And so you had, for instance, one idea we talked about before in World War One, they would immobilize people. Well, now it's, no, no, we don't immobilize them. We actually need to get them moving, get them in a wheelchair, get them moving their arms and their chest, because that's what's going to propel the wheelchair. That's what's going to move them along. So they would have some exercises. They would have pulleys over their beds so that they could lift themselves up. And again, gaining strength, you gain muscle, gaining muscle. Maybe you have your appetite back, you gain weight, and you feel better about yourself. And I think the exercise sort of comes in. I mean, if, if, to put it in perspective, the VA administrators and doctors sort of looked around and said, okay, we've got 2,500, and this is in the United States, we've got 2,500 uh, paralyzed veterans who are coming back. These are all young men. These are all, let's say, you know, 19 to 40 in, in terms of age. They're actually going to live. They're going to live perhaps a natural lifespan. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to get these guys up and moving and out of the hospital and, you know, being productive members of society? So it, it was a group effort. It was a, It was a concerted effort by the VA, by the government, to get these guys up and moving, training them with jobs, but also uh, training them with exercise to get their morale up, to get their um, and and also to help their sort of body get moving again, and, and to feel normal, to feel and I'm putting normal in quotes, to feel normal. It's a new normal for them, you know. It it it's different. It, it, one uh, somebody pointed out to me one of the veterans who I, I talked to said, you know, it's very different if you're, let's say, born with a disability and you're, you know, in a wheelchair from, let's say, age five, okay? That, that's your normal. It's, it's very different if you're, you know, a 25-year-old young man and, and you get injured in the war and then you come back. That's a major adjustment that you have to make. And, and so uh, exercise and, and sports were considered, hey, let's, let's see if this works. And and it turns out basketball was, was the best fit.
2: So what about basketball? You know, because it was very interesting that they tried, you know, in, in the UK, you talked that they were playing netball. At some point, they played sort of an early form of floor volleyball and bowling. But what about basketball seemed to catch on in wheelchair sports?
0: Great question, because to me, it was sort of that great mystery. Uh, how is it that people seated in a wheelchair would choose you know, basketball, which is, you know, when we think about basketball, we think about height. You know, we think about, oh, you got to be six foot, at least six foot tall to play. So basketball has several great facets about it that fit in well with paraplegia. First of all, a basketball court is flat and it's wooden. And so you can wheel on that pretty easily with your wheelchair. You can roll your wheelchair pretty easily. Even those old, clunky ones that they were using back then you can you know play it year round the court itself is big enough to accommodate you know five on five ten ten players and as it turns out also you know we talked about you know pulleys above your bed um basketball itself shooting passing it uses the muscles that you really need if you know if you're a paralyzed veteran, it, that you really need the chest, the shoulders, the arms. You know when you're shooting, when you're passing, when you're, you know, moving your wheelchair. So though it was a really good fit, and you know you mentioned the UK. Actually the first sport that they tried there, um, and they still it's still very popular. It was um, archery. Which, again, it's the same sort of concept. It's using the chest muscles and arm muscles and shoulder. And that's really therapeutic for people with paraplegia. And the other thing about basketball, I think a lot in the U.S., a lot of these young men, you know, had probably played it. Um, Service ball in World War II, service ball was a big deal, service basketball. So I, I think there was a familiarity with it. And, I mean, think about... Wheelchair, especially back then, the wheelchair technology was not that great. I mean, you know, baseball, you couldn't really, you know, it's not fun to wheel a wheelchair on, you know, in grass and dirt. And same with, you know, other sports.
2: One of the things that surprised me was that the basket for wheelchair basketball is standard height. Yes. I never yes. really thought about it, but that's kind of amazing. It that is. They, they really fought to keep it at standard height.
0: Yeah, it, I, I agree. And that, that was another difference. You, you brought up netball. And again, I mean, there's, there is so much I was ignorant about when I started researching this. And I'm still very ignorant about everything. But um, it, I had never heard of netball, um, which apparently is sort of big in, in England and Australia and, and maybe Commonwealth nations to, to a certain degree. And if you look at the photos, those those... Early netball photos, the rim where the and there is no backboard in netball. Just for for your listeners, the rim was lowered, and it, you know obviously to make it a little bit easier for those in a wheelchair because they're not tall, they're not standing tall. So yeah, I agree. Um, I, I and I don't know from or if, what I do know is that there were attempts to lower the basket to under 10 feet. And I think the veterans said, "No, this is this is basketball. This is what we play." And they insisted on it being 10 feet and keeping it as it is and, you know, the foul line is where the foul line is and all that sort of thing. And I, you know, looking back, that that was a huge that was a huge move psychologically both for the players and also for the spectators, the first spectators to watch these guys, you know, they're watching, you know, a quote-unquote normal basketball game. You know, this isn't some rinky-dink, oh, let's lower this to 8 feet or something like that. Um, And I I think that was a very, very important move to to keep it at at 10 feet.
1: It also makes it easier to hold games just wherever. Wherever there's a basketball court, you could hold a wheelchair basketball game too, and that probably – became important as teams started to travel and do exhibitions and matches.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And probably back then some of the gyms, and I've seen the the original gym where they played in Van Nuys. I mean, you know, it's old school gym. You had a basket and a and a backboard and you know, you're pretty happy about that. I don't think you you had all of the ways to adjust things that they do now. Um so yeah, there was a practical element to it. I'm 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 sure. Absolutely. And by the way, I've now attempted, and I stress that, to play wheelchair basketball. There's a, something called the Abilities Expo, which is a, a convention that travels around the country, and it's a great resource for people with disabilities. And I, I highly recommend going. And the one in Los Angeles had a, you had a chance to be able to sit in a wheelchair and, and play, and I can tell I mean, it is incredibly difficult and an incredibly difficult adjustment to make to shoot from, you know, a sitting position and to, and to shoot for you know, so high a basket. It, it, it's that's and that's without, you know, having to move around and play defense and all that sort of thing. So it's, it's a highly skilled. And if, if you watch, and, and I hope, I hope you, you and some of your listeners have watched elite wheelchair basketball. It's, it's, a fascinating chess chess match, so to speak. It, I mean, a lot of action, a lot of shooting, a lot of fun to watch.
2: I thought it was very interesting uh, when you were talking about the development of wheelchair basketball as, you know, a spectator sport, that these first teams that were formed at the VA hospitals went and played exhibition games against undisabled or not disabled players in wheelchairs, So, like, why wouldn't you find another wheelchair team, or were there just so few?
0: There were just so few, exactly. There were just so few. Because in the beginning, you know, we're talking 1946, 47, 48, in that era, the only teams that were formed were from those VA hospitals. So you couldn't just sort of go down the street and, and, you know, play another team or, or whatever. So, yeah, you had to sort of make do, which was to find a team that would play you, you know, what they would call a non-disabled or an able-bodied team who would borrow wheelchairs for the occasion and the two teams would play and 98% of the time the wheelchair basketball teams easily triumphed over some of the best teams basically in America. I mean, we're talking about the Harlem Globetrotters, we're talking about the Boston Celtics, the New York Knicks, the Oakland Bittners. And so it was on one level very satisfying for to you know for the wheelchair athletes to win and on another level it was for the spectators it was it was an impressive display of athleticism and teamwork and coordination and you know you had 15,000 people watching them in Madison Square Garden Uh, and that was one of the few games that were two wheelchair basketball teams playing one another from VA hospitals and you know, they realized, wow, this is this is pretty impressive. And I, I, I think it was, somebody had mentioned this as sort of a line, but um, I, I didn't use it in the book, but it, in a sense, they were the Helen Kellers of paraplegia. You know, they were going out there in the world to say, hey, look, look at us, we we can do this. And in that time, it's certainly in the beginning, um, and I'm getting a little bit astray from, from your original question, but at the time, I mean, it was a phenomenon. I mean, you had one athlete on the cover of Newsweek. Uh, you had newsreels just showing them. Every magazine, you know, Women's Home Companion, uh, um, Popular Mechanics, the Daily Worker, the Communist newspaper. Everybody wrote about these guys because it was, you know, I think it, it was very proud. It was a, it was a, it was a moment where you could say, you know, these guys sacrificed for their country, and overcoming paraplegia which had been a death sentence and and now look at them you know racing up and down the court and beating these non-disabled teams so it was uh it it, it really caught the attention i think of of the public and the media in that time
2: i was very surprised at, it you never mentioned in the book that there was any pushback from the non-disabled team they many of these teams seemed very more than willing to do these exhibitions
0: Yeah, and I think look, let's face it. A lot of those men themselves were were also veterans at the time. You know, if you were a you know a twenty six year old basketball player uh, who was able, you know, non disabled or able bodied, chances are you had been in the war, even if you hadn't seen time in you know in battle, but you were in the navy or in the marines and you played service ball or something. So, I think there was a feeling of giving back. And a lot of those early games, a lot of those early exhibitions, they doubled as fundraisers for the Paralyzed Veterans of America. And so that was an important source of revenue for the PVA, which uh, uh, just for your listeners still exists and is just a very, very important organization, not just because of the issue we're talking about here, but because they, they did so much lobbying for disability rights so these fundraisers were important for that organization to whether they were you know uh, funding research about paraplegia or you know helping other veterans you know if they needed something um assistance or what or whatever so it, it was a combination and i i think it's it's hard for us to imagine today in so many ways but you know the the country coming out of world war 2 was so you know, so many people had seen service, in you know, proportionately. So ev- everybody knew somebody or, or had somebody in their family who, who had served in the war or, you know, a neighbor, a classmate, a, a relative. And so I think a, a lot of this was this feeling of, you know, hey, these guys made the sacrifice, and now we're going to play them in, in, in wheelchair basketball, and, and it'll be great for everybody, you know, the spectators, the, the players themselves, and, 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 and so forth.
1: It's also kind of interesting that as time went on, it kind of seemed like the public's interest in wheelchair basketball faded, especially as the Korean War started. But then the sport kept growing in, in popularity among the athletes.
0: Yes, definitely. I definitely thought that was interesting. And, you know, to reference what you had asked before about sort of, you you know, about writing about those veterans and what they were up to before the war, in my mind, as as you know, as the author, as the writer, I I had thought, oh, these guys are going to continue their career, you know, in wheelchair basketball for you know the rest of their lives. But it, as it turned out, uh, most of the World War II veterans, you know, after a while, left the sport. You know, they they had families, they uh, had jobs, and or they lived in areas where there weren't enough men to you know players to form a good team so I I think that initial publicity and burst of uh, notoriety so to speak you know faded and uh, the sport sort of morphed from just being for veterans only and just paralyzed veterans to more open and that was obviously a positive thing in other words now you had people who who had become paralyzed with polio or um, they also a- also opened up the doors for amputees. So that was important. But the sort of the war aspect, the veteran aspect did fade away. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, let's face it, the Korean War is called the Forgotten War. And for a lot of reasons, unfortunately, for, you know, the veterans there, they didn't come back to sort of the the praise and the hoopla and, and, you know, the flag waving as the World War II veterans uh, came back from. And obviously that extends to Vietnam, where it's even, you know, the veterans even received quite harsh public um, response. So, uh, yeah, it, it did fade away from, from the veterans. But on the other hand, it, was, it became more inclusive. So I, I, I think that, you know, they sort of balanced each other out in that sense.
2: One of the master strokes in the development of all weird wheelchair sports was having the first Stoke-Mandeville event in connection with the 1948 London Olympics. And that mm. just kind of happened. There's so many things in this story that just kind of happen.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I found that fascinating as, as well. And, you know, you guys are Olympic scholars, and that 1948 Olympics, it's really, I don't know if it's been underrated maybe here in America versus, let's say, England and London, where I think they're very proud of that, as well they should be. Um, I mean, that really kept the Olympic movement alive, right, the 48 games. I mean, and whether you supported that they were put on or, or they should have delayed, that's a different debate. but. But they were very important games. And Ludwig Gutmann, who becomes a central character, you know, in the book as, as the narrative moves along, was very, very savvy. And he, you know, he's a fascinating story. He, elite neurosurgeon from Germany, German Jew, who basically escaped the Nazis right before the war, and ended up fleeing to to England with his family, um, his wife and two kids. And in the beginning, was sort of not, didn't really have much of a you know, professional career until he was put in charge of the Spinal Cord Injury Center uh, based in Stoke Mandeville. And Goodman, like his uh, counterparts in the U.S., uh, including Dr. Donald Monroe and Ernest Boers here in, in the U.S., really believed in the new way of handling paraplegia. And this comprehensive care and having specialists to look at every type of you know, bodily function, so to speak. And he also was a believer in exercise, and getting these guys and, and women up and moving and having exercise and training them for, for jobs. He felt it was important that, the, that these men and women could contribute to society. And, you know, literally said that, hey, these will be pa- tax paying individuals. A- and to him, that was an important aspect. And I think he was very savvy in having the, the, that first Stoke Mandeville Games on the exact same day as the opening ceremony for the 1948 London Olympics, which, which took place, you know, not that far away from the grounds of Stoke Mandeville. And uh, he was very, very savvy in aligning the what were initially the Stoke-Mandeville games with the Olympics and the Olympic movement. And even in that first day, that first Stoke-Mandeville games where it was only archery, by the second where I think it was archery and netball, he was already saying this will be the equivalent of the Olympics for people with disability. And I you know just uh, I guess an amazing visionary to 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 think that and to think it out loud and to actually make it happen in in his lifetime.
2: Gutman was such a fantastic character in the book, and it sounds like in real life, and hearing you talk about it reinforces the impression that you really like him
0: <laughs> well i I think i I really like what he what he helped produce. um it sounded like if you worked for him, you wouldn't be as happy. He was very much a uh a stickler for detail and um had a temper and was perhaps maybe dictatorial and that actually and later on in his career, you know he had some conflicts with the athletes themselves because there was a little bit of a divide because for Goodman, the idea was was rehabilitation and we'll get you up and moving and it'll be great and you'll be able to participate with other athletes from, from other countries. Uh, for the elite athletes, they, they wanted more. And by the time you come to the 60s and 70s and 80s, and I think Goodman passes away in 1980, but by that time, you know, you you have athletes demanding different uh, different models and different ways of competing. So there became a conflict. But in terms of originally, yes, of course, I I would I admired him. I, he had a rich life and um, he touched a lot of people. And I, I I say this to to me, the writing is excruciatingly difficult for me. I am not a natural writer i love research i love research i can research for the next five years and going over to london to look at ludwig gutman's papers i mean uh, which are at something called the welcome library or resource center um in london i mean uh, that's just fascinating i mean you're looking at his photographs his writing all of that stuff to, just just fascinating and um yeah, highlight of of doing the book as as well as other research trips.
1: <laughs> One of the interesting things I thought was that he Gutman really wanted the U.S. to come over to the Stoke Mandeville Games, and it was an adjustment for both sides when when they did because the U.S. had to learn how to play netball, but then they also had much better wheelchairs than the Europeans, which was a, a fascinating part of. The the book is the the development of better wheelchairs.
0: Yeah, totally, totally, and I'm, I I appreciate that you you know you picked up on that and well it, it, his his motivation was of course at that time you know Europe had been pretty much demolished because of the war so you know the superpower was the United States and that also applied I would say athletically and I think. You'll I think you'll back me up on this. The Soviet Union wasn't even involved in the Olympic movement at that point in 1948. Yeah. So to, for Goodman, the attraction was, okay, these are you know, the United States is it when it comes to sports and Olympics. So it was, it was very important, vital for him to have the US. come over. And it and it took a while. They they only came until uh, what was it, fifty four, fifty five in that time frame. And you're right. When they did, and it was the it was the the Pan Am Jets, uh, <laughs> who were a wheelchair basketball team um, sponsored by the airline, and they came over and to their sort of surprise and shock, it was they were playing netball, and it was a huge adjustment in terms of. Going from basketball to netball, but they made the adjustment, and part of that adjustment was because they had these wheelchairs that were for the day, for the time. Light, I mean, they were about 45 pounds, but for the day that was light because the Europeans and certainly the English, they were like, you know, 100 pounds or 125 pounds. They were behemoths, and the the U.S. had the brand name was Everest and Jennings. And they were designed by, uh, initially by Harry Evers, who was himself a person with a disability who could not find a wheelchair that that he could, you know, put in the back of his car and go to work with. And he and another engineer, Jennings, combined to create this new wheelchair with using lightweight aluminum and uh, the fabric itself could fold so you could stash it, you could, you could uh, somebody in a wheelchair could wheel out to to his or her car, uh, you know, open the door, jump in the the driver's seat, fold up the wheelchair and put it in the back seat, and you know, be on your way and go to a business meeting or go socialize or, you know, uh, it freed them from staying in the hospital. And the chair itself was designed differently. The old chairs had the big wheels in the front. Everest and Jennings put the big wheels in the back and small wheels in the front, so they were much more maneuverable. And again, compared to today, it's like a horse and buggy. But back then, my gosh, they could you know wheel up and down the court no problem. Versus these wooden framed, you know, they were basically armchairs on wheels. And I mean, you know, to to turn one of those, it was like turning an aircraft carrier. So, yeah, they went, when, they first, when the U.S. team first goes over there, they bring this new technology, and it, it, it really does help to change the direction, the course of wheelchair sports. Because that, that, those and Jennings, they were the standard model up until the 60s when, again, athletes sort of took control of their fate and, and, and changed the chairs themselves to help uh, in sports and in all sports whether it was track and field or, or basketball or, you know, we talked about rugby and that sort of hot sled hockey, that sort of thing. You, you start adapting the equipment uh, for the sport. Rome
2: 1960 and especially Tokyo 1964 were mm. huge turning points for para-sports and also how the world saw para-athletes the some of the stories you told about Rome where they had to be forklifted into the airplanes and the the bathroom doors weren't wide enough were yeah. so fascinating and yet by Tokyo those para athletes were were treated very much the same as olympians
0: yeah it was a big i mean they they're important vitally important to the paralympic movement rome and Tokyo, 60 and 64, for four different reasons. Rome was, was a s- smaller deal in terms of the number of athletes. I think the U.S. team was, I don't know, 24, 25, all men, by the way, at that point, uh, while the rest of the world had, had women para-athletes by that time. So the, the U.S. was actually way behind on, on the women uh, aspect, unfortunately. But Rome was important, even though there were many obstacles and many problems um as, as you alluded to when ludwig gutman and and his um, sort of minions you know had arranged this with with a doctor who had cared for you know Italian war veterans, and they had been promised that they would get some of the same uh, that they would be able to stay in a in a place that was accessible for the wheelchair athletes, and that they would be able to use some of the same facilities as the athletes who had just, you know, competed in Rome. And then when they got there, when they arrived in Rome, which was after some, sometime after the Olympics, it wasn't immediately after, they were not in the great Olympic village. Um, They were housed in Apartments, I guess, that were at least two that, you know, they were on the second or third floor and there were no ramps. They didn't have ramps. They, you know, uh, the uh, security and military people had to like carry them up bodily and then carry up their wheelchairs. And yeah, they couldn't access, uh, they couldn't access the bathrooms in their wheelchairs. So it was sort of uh, demeaning. They also had to get on a bus every day, which is no easy feat, and were driven uh, you know to to a site that was not you know I think it was Olympic it was more of a training facility as opposed to an Olympic facility. So there, there were some issues in Rome, but for Goodman, symbolically, it was incredibly important that he had finally aligned, the Olympics and the Paralympics in the same city in the same year. And that was a huge boom. And there was quite a bit of publicity. And, you know, the the para-athletes saw, you know, were introduced to the Pope and all that sort of thing. So there was a lot of publicity, a lot of publicity worldwide. So, again, very important for the Paralympic movement. And then you mentioned, uh, you know, Tokyo 64, and that was sort of the – even more successful, I would say, in so many ways, I think Tokyo organizers and really worked hard to facilitate the athletes and make sure that they were treated well. You know you had the Crown prince and the Crown Princess there, you know at the opening ceremony and to be a presence and that was incredibly important and um, the U.S. team finally had uh, women on their team, thankfully, and so they had a nice turnout and did quite well. And I think we're, you know, you guys again know on Olympic history so well, you know, Tokyo was so important for Japan and sort of its coming out after the war. And obviously, you know, as, as a writer, I was like, well, you know, here we begin this book you know with with the us at war in europe and in the pacific and then we sort of end it with the paralympics in uh, rome and tokyo and of course it was time for the tokyo 2020 olympics but we know what happened there but it, it was incredibly important also beyond sports because at the time asia and and was a, maybe was a little behind in some ways in terms of care for People with disabilities, and this was this event helped highlight the ability of the athletes, and I think was a major because it was successful. They got great, nice crowds, a lot of volunteers, and when Goodman returned home, uh, you know he was very, very pleased that again he had aligned the Paralympics with the Olympics, and I I think he thought that was going to continue every four years and of course there after Tokyo there was there was a pause in terms of that alignment but he had uh, by that you know he had sort of proven his point that the Paralympics were an event that was newsworthy and international and had the trappings of the Olympic movement and uh, I I think he felt very satisfied with that.
1: One of the things I, I found very fascinating In uh, the book was also the development of the class system for Paralympics and how wheelchair basketball was kind of at the forefront of that because you you had people who all of a sudden organizers or I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but you had these conversations, I would say, about people who had advantages in the chair versus other other types of athletes and what did you find in your research about that
0: yeah and i appreciate that and it it probably i probably could have amplified that a little bit more in the book but sort of being that my stopping point was roughly in a sense the na- in in terms of the narrative was 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 tokyo i stayed away from it a little bit but having said all that so yeah, it, it, it it's an it's a fascinating issue. the the class, classification is a is a fascinating issue. And again, it was something I didn't understand and realize about until I started researching the book. But as we know, so these first wheelchair athletes are all, you know, let's let's say ninety percent, ninety five percent paralyzed veterans. So they all have sort of the same disability, even though maybe they're Injuries are different in terms of where they occurred on the on spinal cord, but for the most part, they're paralyzed veterans. That's sort of your general rubric. Once wheelchair sports started to open up to others, like those with polio, um, amputees, um, you brought in a different a different type of athlete who perhaps might have more movement or agility or being able to have what might be considered an advantage over somebody with paraplegia. So the initial way that that was handled was, again, Ludwig Gutmann sort of delineating two classes. Okay, basically those with paraplegia and those with polio. With the idea that if you had polio, you had some more movement. You could maybe uh, lift yourself off the chair a little bit, something like that. Maybe have a little more advantage over somebody with paraplegia. And yet it was all done on sort of a medical model. And this is where it runs into some conflict later on with the athletes who they know what the, their ability or what their body can do or not do. And, and yet they were being subject to just a medical exam as opposed to a, an ability exam. Like I can do this or that with, in a wheelchair Versus somebody who is being looked at by a doctor and said, okay, you, you can do this and you're classified as this. So I, I don't think they anticipated that, um, meaning Goodman and the organizations that he led, and, and, and he sort of led a lot of these um, organizations in terms of para-athletes. And it, it became very complicated. And again, once you brought in other people with other disabilities, they sort of, in, in a sense, were, were trying to make it even more complicated. They would divide it into five different classifications. Then when you add other sports into that, besides wheelchair basketball, you, you've got other factors to deal with. So it, it became a very complicated issue, and as I mentioned in the book, the the athletes themselves sort of rebelled and said, you know, no, this, this is not serving us well. And by the way, there's some lying going on, and people can say, oh, I, I can't move this way in a medical exam. And yet when they're on the court, they can certainly do some movements that, that they weren't showing in on the medical exam. So they, they, were, they were saying that, you know, basically people were cheating so it it became a very, very hot issue and as as you know it it's still to this day they're having some issues with with the code and and classification in terms of wheelchair basketball yeah
1: it's just it's all very fascinating and it's it was really fun to read the genesis of all of this and hmm. and hmm. be able to pinpoint what we know back like oh that's when this happened, and that's when that happened so it was right. it's It was a great read for us.
0: I I agree. And like I said, if the narrative had had stretched much more past, you know, if I'd sort of brought it, the story of wheelchair basketball to the present day, I would have been heavily into the whole classification controversies and subtleties. And, yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating topic.
1: Volume two. (laughs) 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 Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much, David. You can find David's website at ddavisla.com and learn more about Wheels of Courage and his other Olympic books, Watermen, The Life and Times of Duke Kahanamoku, and Showdown at Shepherds Bush, the 1908 Olympic Marathon, and the Three Runners Who Launched a Sporting Craze. You can also follow David on Twitter at uh, ddavisla. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. He was so much fun. (sighs) And the book, oh, the book was so good.
2: The book is really, really good. It's a great read. And the photos in it are interesting and the facts in it are interesting. And just, I'm so glad we did this.
1: Yeah, it's definitely worth reading. Uh, It just draws you in right away. And it's, it's really fascinating to just see the history of disability and what, I mean, like, if we didn't have World War II and polio to instigate some of these things, I think the instance of people being in wheelchairs would not be as great. And where where would some of those disability rights be now?
2: One thing that reading the book made me think of is all the advancements right now with brain injuries and PTSD, again, sparked by injuries to soldiers. Yes, and I think that's a, a, an analogous situation and how these horrible tragedies move the medical field forward in such a big way. And people are so supportive of it, because certainly in the United States, because of how we view the military. Right. So, hey, if the VA can push, in this case, wheelchair sports, or now with better treatment for brain injuries, fantastic. Exactly. So a new documentary on the Paralympics called Rising Phoenix just dropped on Netflix. It has a very cool teaser. I don't know if you caught the trailer. It's beautiful. So I'm very excited to watch this. So if you have seen it, let us know what you think. And I will be watching it this week.
1: I, as, as will I. So let's go check in with our team Keep the Flame Alive. Welcome to Shukflastan. Again, we're having a little bit of summer doldrums, so it's a quiet week with our team. But excellent news for our loser, Shiva Keshavan, who has been conferred the Arjuna Award, which is given by the Indian Ministry of Youth Affairs and Sports. This award is given for consistent outstanding performance for four years. And this year, 29 people have earned this award this year, and they'll get it on National Sports Day on August 29th.
2: And it was his birthday this week, too.
1: Yeah, so. She had a good week. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Let's move on to our Tokyo 2020 news. Uh, Inside the Games has reported that the torch relay is going to be pretty much the same. The schedule is going to be pretty much the same as the original one for 2020.
2: Which is a surprise because they were talking about scaling it back considerably.
1: I know. To save money. So maybe
2: it's, they'll do as many relay stages, but just the whole pomp and circumstance around it will be cut back. People involved will be cut back. I'm surprised it's going to be as long as it was originally.
1: Yeah. And and Michael Pavitt was writing for Inside the Games and said a reduction would have required the organizers to hold discussions with the impacted sponsors and local governments. So I kind of wonder if they didn't want to have those conversations with sponsors saying, yeah, you gave us all this money and we're going to cut back your exposure. And uh, or with local governments who were hoping to have the torch come through, which is, you know, people will come out and see the torch. Maybe some people would travel to see the torch.
2: And I wonder if that will even be true. I mean, maybe just because they're not expecting crowds now for the torch that that's a good question.
1: I don't I don't know. I still think that maybe curiosity or maybe by next year it will be a, a bit of a different situation and they'll yeah. be they'll be uh coming out for it. So that's an interesting bit of news. Also, uh the Olympic Flame is going on display and Japan Times has reported that the flame will be housed at the near the new national stadium and it will go on display to the public Uh, if you want to see it you will have to book in advance there's a museum near the games main stadium in central tokyo so you'll have to book tickets in advance and they're going to limit the number of entrants to 60 people per 30 minutes
2: So you can look at the flame for half an hour, then move on, babe. That's right. That's right. It's enough of that. (laughs) Well, they had put it in a secure location for several months. So I'm glad they're putting it back out again. Yeah. A little literal flame of hope.
1: Very true. Very true. The International Paralympics Committee president uh, has announced that a COVID vaccine will not be essential for the Paralympics to go ahead, which I think is very interesting.
2: Yes, because there have been a lot of murmurings about Tokyo 2021 being canceled. Sebastian Coe, head of athletics, said, you might want to start thinking that it may not happen. And some other Japanese officials have said this. So because of the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting the Paralympics are just like, no, we're fine.
1: Right. And this is also inside the games and they said they're they're still doing scenario planning for if the games happen or they don't happen but i think there's other, they the ipc has looked at other sporting events that have happened around the world and have figured out that you know we can f- we know that the magnitude of this is a little bit different than say the nba in america or the UFEA champions league in football but that that kind of stuff happening and going well makes oh, it more possible. Yeah. And then Australia has released its Paralympic kit, which we've posted pictures. We'll have a link to those in the show notes. Green and yellow, as are most of their, out their uniforms. Uh, the Paralympics Australia said uh, the Paralympic uniforms are earned through blood, sweat and tears. And they are generally, uh, the sporty outfits are yellow tops with green bottoms. They've got uh, leggings, they've got shorts, they've got pants, and most of them have some form of a uh, custom commissioned indigenous work on them, which is very cool.
2: What surprises me so often about when we see the kits come out is so many of the opening ceremony outfits have jackets and blazers and long pants and hats. And did we forget that Tokyo is hot? <laughs> so I'm very concerned. I mean, I know in, in years past and we've watched the old movies, they were always, you know, fitted out with suits and ties. and
1: But, man, they just – they
2: these all look
1: hot. Right, and they do have uh, their ceremonies uniforms – are a, like a white polo with a green band across the top and a jacket that looks to be black or denim and then dark bottoms. And that ranges from pants to shorts to skirts. I'm concerned. Uh, we'll see. It'll be
2: interesting. Though it does have a jaunty scarf. It does. And I'm like, well, you can always wipe your brow with the jaunty scarf. A lot of these outfits have these jaunty scarves. That's going to be what we're going to remember from the 2020-2021 is the the jaunty scarf.
1: I hope so. In other Olympic news, we talked a few weeks ago about the 1960 Winter Olympics site changing its name from Squaw Valley. And the owners of the resort there have announced that they will definitely be changing the name because uh, the word squaw is a a derogatory word for uh, Native American women. So they'll, they'll have a new name coming out in 2021, but they they're doing a lot. They did a lot of research and a lot of discussion with experts and Native Americans in the area and came to that conclusion. And they will be uh, choosing a new, more appropriate name soon. And then the Atlanta History Center is going to open an exhibit celebrating Atlanta 1996. This is very exciting. Uh, This exhibit's going to consider the impact of the games on the city of Atlanta and the people there. That exhibit will open on September 18th, if you go. Now, is this going to be a virtual
2: or is this going to be No,
1: it will be live. They are open. Huh. So if you go, let us know. Let us know what it's like. Absolutely. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Let us know what you think about wheelchair basketball.
2: Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and Keep the Flame Alive podcast group on Facebook.
1: Next week, we will have another lightning round episode. So tune in to find out who we will feature Uh, as we go out to music by Archdale. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.